Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now let's bring in Avery Sheffield, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Long Short Equity Hedge Fund Strategy at Rockefeller Asset Management. Avery, it's great to have you back on the program again. I just want to hit you first with the PPI data. I'm sure you've seen, but a huge jump um, in final demand year over year, up 9.6%. Does inflation concern you, or do you think the Fed's got a handle on it? Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, everything I see suggests that there's, we're nowhere near the end of inflation, um, both from the PPI prices and from the ability of, of many companies to pass on inflation, um, that's really been significantly improved through um, through their own analytical tools um, and, and, and and buying discipline. So yes, the, the PPI I think is just one more indicator that inflation is likely to, to be around longer than anticipated. And you know, I almost I feel like no matter what the Fed does, we're likely to see this as, as, as a new norm. So. Avery, maybe a little bit of a new norm here, um, higher inflation, maybe not obviously where we are here at 6 7%, but certainly higher than where we were 2% for such a long period of time. How's the consumer faring with that? It seems like some of the retail numbers that we've seen out of the retailers in their earnings third quarter were pretty darn solid. There was some pretty good guidance for the holidays. What's your take of the consumer and the consumer space? Yeah, so... Um, you know, retailers are, have really been succeeding for the most part in passing on this inflation. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, that I, I feel positive, uh, you know, constructive about um, the fact inflation is, is going to continue. Um, you know, you're certainly seeing some pressure in the lower income con- consumer. And next year, as they, you know, last stimulus benefits, um, you know, I think people are going to be very selective about, about where they're spending. Uh, but from a, from a, from a kind of a company, from a stock perspective, those companies that have been able to pass on a higher pricing, I think, are, are places to look for investments next year, um, it, because those companies that have been able to pass on higher pricing are those more likely to next year. Um, it means that consumers like their products. There's real demand for them. Um, they have underappreciated some underappreciated pricing power. How do you think about Omicron? Paul and I have been talking about the fact that. What you see happen in Europe, um, the U.S. typically follows, and we're hitting a big wave, or a big wave is hitting us here in Europe now. Does that happen to the U.S. later? I actually don't see it because we see so much data coming in that that this variant is very mild. And so I think if that continues, um, you know, Europe is going to be kind of a a, a place to see this play out first before the U.S. has to act. I mean, certainly if— if, if Omicron becomes, you know, much more of an issue in terms of um, hospitalizations and deaths, you might see some actions here. But if we continue to see it quite benign, I, mean, I was just reading something this morning about about some places starting to reverse, um, even some of the travel bans. I, I think, you know, the U.S. could get through this with, with fewer freedoms. Like we're seeing definitely mask mandates, um, but not necessarily much of an economic impact. Avery, what's the... Uh the status of the supply chain issues as you take a look at some of the consumer companies out there. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a function here on the Bloomberg terminal uh, that lets me, it's a mapping function, lets me see a bunch of ships 
still docked off the ports of Los Angeles, still docked off the ports of Savannah and, and New York and so on. Is this something that we can expect to resolve over some period of time? Or is this, again, a little bit of a new normal here? Yes, and the companies we're speaking with, um, they don't anticipate uh, this resolving, most of them, until at least the second half of next year. Um, so they're planning for it. So they're, they're ordering earlier. Um, they're, they're, they're being much more thoughtful about where they're sourcing from. Um, and, and they're pricing for it. So I, I think that this is likely to continue um, at some point, right? It should fully resolve. I mean, just from a container ship perspective, there are a lot of new orders on, uh, on hand uh, going out a couple years from now. So at some point, there should be a lot more supply of containers. Um, but, of course, it, it has to do with the logistics of the ports, and, and COVID is related to that. Um, you'd expect COVID to, you know, to, to, to resolve um, at some point in, in, in the next, you know, six to 12 months. So I think we, we should start to see the baby. Some companies have actually just um, in the past couple of weeks commented that they're seeing things loosen up a little bit for them. But as an overall dynamic, um, everyone's planning for it. And, uh, and it, it looks like it, you know, it might not resolve for another six to 12 months. How do you benchmark a long short equity hedge fund strategy? I mean, can you underperform uh, big gains and at le- as long as you outperform years where there are losses? Look, I mean, I think as an as an investor in any entity as a fund as a stock, um, I wouldn't be investing in funds that um, that that aren't generating you know real real returns. I, I know long short equity as a category is really underperformed, but in that category, there are many funds um, that have actually done very well and have preserved capital um, during times like the COVID crisis and actually done quite well in markets like we've had and really protect for the next downturn. I mean, you know, from an individual, while the market as a whole has kind of marched higher, you're seeing tremendous bifurcation underneath the surface. And a lot of companies' um, stocks down meaningfully in this, in this uh, you know, even in the past six months. Hmm. And should you see some bellwethers, you know, start to turn a bit, um, the indices themselves might might struggle. So, look, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen here, but the benefit of you know a, a, of a long short strategy that considers all these things and has has proven to do well through the past um, uh, is is that you know even if things yeah. turn south, you can do well. But you know I, I would look at every individual strategy um, independently. All right, Avery, thanks so much for joining us. Avery Sheffield, there's an MD at Rockefeller Asset Management. Let's bring in Sean Carney now. He is the head of Muni Strategy over at BlackRock, and that means Paul is very excited. Darn right. Sean, uh, talk to me about how much does it matter if we get this Build Back Better bill passed? To Muni's, is it less important um, than than the infrastructure bill was? Uh, it matters, um, but, but I would say it's not as important. Um, you know, some of the... the keys that the muni market has, has looked at is investors are anticipating higher taxes uh, as a result of the Build Back Better uh, plan. If we just look at a, a simple calculation of a market implied tax benefit, it shows you know the market pricing for a 52% top marginal tax rate, which, as you know, is significantly higher than this administration uh, has been has been talking. But I think that the bigger impact comes from the supply side of the equation, where things like advanced refunding bonds and Build America bonds were omitted from the from the final draft, which ultimately would have been a catalyst for for greater supply in the market. So it does matter, 
and uh, markets are paying attention. So, Sean, in the muni market, um, again, I'm a big fan of the muni market. The muni bond returns have been very strong compared with other fixed income markets this year. What's behind that, and, and, and what's the outlook for 2022? That's a good question. So it, they have been, and, and a lot of people concentrate on the gross returns. I think it's also important to, to look at excess returns. So year-to-date, the investment-grade muni market is up about 1.5%, but in excess returns, i.e. when we duration match munis to treasuries, munis are up 380 basis points in excess returns when you compare that to a U.S. ag or corporate IG that's down about one and a half percent. I think there's several factors that have been driving this year's positive performance. And while I want to say it can continue into 22, there's a couple of things I think we need to pay attention to. Like I mentioned, higher taxes on the individual side would help. On the corporate side, it's still unclear the role that banks and insurance companies will play from the demand side. This year's outperformance has relative value measures, i.e. muni treasury ratios screening a bit rich. So sub 50% in the first five years of the curve and probably 10 ratios rich out longer on the curve. So as long as supply demand dynamics remain skewed positive, munis will hold in well. However, if that ratio goes a little sideways, we could see munis come under a bit of pressure. I think about the net positive months of March and April and September and October, which have a little bit less uh, you know, technical strength than others. And then I'd say the other thing to pay attention to is muni fundamentals support continued strong performance, as does the notion interest rates will rise in 2022, as munis tend to outperform in a rising rate environment given their structure. Where are there places um, that are most advantageous to buy munis still if you're looking for a tax avoidance? There are. You know, our the way that we've kind of been positioning portfolios and, you know, positioning going into 22 is I'd, I'd say we're going into the year slightly long duration stance, but importantly, maintaining a barbell yield curve strategy. So we prefer lower rated investment grade bonds, for instance, particularly in the front end of the yield curve as well as select high-yield credits. And we maintain a favorable view on tax-backed transportation, healthcare, and the education sectors. And the economic recovery is positioned to continue with strong growth in the tighter labor market in the coming year. You know, hence our, our preference for, for those you know, parts of the market on the yield curve and across the credit spectrum. Sean, give us a sense just kind of how fund flows have been into the muni space here. I'm guessing with some talk about higher taxation out there, people are more interested in munis. Flows have been phenomenal. Year to date, we've seen about $83 billion come into the market. We have three prints left, but we're probably going to come in just shy of the record year of 2019 that printed about $94 billion. It's been sensational. There's many different ways that we can look at it. You know, we can use MUB, the largest muni ETF uh, ticker, as as a way of looking at um, whether it trades at a discount or a premium to its NAV. That's ultimately kind of what fast money will tell you about you know, right. future flows. And it's been very positive. It remains very positive. We've been seeing you know good inflows from from all different types of accounts. So, you know, one would believe that as performance continues, you know, we'll we'll see fund flows continue as well as we flip the calendar into into twenty twenty two. All right, Sean. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you sharing your thoughts here on the municipal bond market. Sean Carney, head of municipal strategy at BlackRock. I want to bring in Sean McCarthy. He's the CEO and co-founder 
of Build America Mutual, talk about the municipal bond market. And we heard earlier in the day, we were chatting, uh, Sean, and how the good performance coming out of the municipal bond market. I want to start with who's buying these things? Give us a sense of who are the buyers in the municipal bond market, retail versus institutional? What's a typical buyer like out there? Well, thanks, uh, Paul and Matt, for having me join you today. Um, so the typical uh, uh, investor in municipal bonds uh, would uh, be somebody who plays uh, has in the high income tax bracket. If you think about the fact that the vast majority of municipal bonds are tax exempt, that benefit uh, uh, really runs to the individual who uh, is purchasing those bonds. And so you really think about municipal bonds generally as uh, retail or um, investments uh, in proxies of retail, meaning funds, uh, institutional funds that you can buy. So um, do you have an eye on the best places to invest right now? I mean, where if I want to avoid taxes and also generate some returns, where do I go in this kind of market? Well, so in the municipal bond market, I'd say there's a couple of things that are happening. This year will um, end up being about a $460 billion market, perhaps a little bit more than that, uh, which is which is a record. We would anticipate that next year would be the same. Now, uh, when you look at what those opportunities are going to be, um, I think they're going to center around uh, some of the things that have happened uh, in Washington. So when the infrastructure bill was passed, that's good in that it, it sort of uh, provides a resource for state and local governments to um, uh, you know, finance and repair infrastructure that, that they have going forward. Um, one of the things that's interesting about that, that uh, federal uh, infrastructure bill is that uh, really still at the, at the fundamental funding level for infrastructure, it's done at the state and local government level. So that's about 90% of bonds that are issued for infrastructure are done at the state and local governments. So what we see happening next year is going to be the fact that there'll be funds that will be matched by the federal government uh, for state and local governments as they sort of build out um, their um, infrastructure and repair the infrastructure that you know is, is long overdue. So this, we think, is a pretty exciting area, and I think that if investors are looking to participate in that market, that's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunity next year to do that. Um, Sean, I want to ask you about just the whole ESG green bond phenomenon. We see corporations looking for the designation of a of their one of their issuance being a green bond or ESG friendly bond. Is that a is that a thing in the municipal bond market as well? You know, it, it's a, it's actually a growing thing. Uh, so we've um, at, at Build America Mutual, um, we've been uh, designating green SAR bonds or, or green bonds um, uh, as part of our underwriting process. Um, you know, for four or five years now. And so, if you think about that market, this past uh, year through the third quarter, over twelve billion dollars of municipal green bonds were issued in the United States. Um, uh, part of what we do as a, as a service is to make that designation. So we've uh, actually designated uh, $1.5 billion worth of transactions through the third quarter um, uh, as green. And that's uh, an important factor because I think there is an investor demand for not only making smart investments, but to doing well, uh, doing good for the community at the same time. So green bonds really sort of, if you think about it, they're, they're, they're the nature of them is sort of 
to finance clean water, renewable energy, energy efficiency. And, and in, in, in Europe, it's, it's something that uh, has been really a part of their uh, uh, market for quite a while. But it's, a, it's definitely a growing area in terms of um, uh, the U.S. municipal market. Talk to us about what you do at BAM. I mean, you have a long history on Wall Street at uh, E.F. Hutton and Payne Weber. Um, you were chief operating officer at Assured Guarantee until you started BAM in 2012. What, what's um, the main crux of your business? So, um, uh, uh, Build America Mutual or BAM is a double A rated uh, financial guarantee company. Basically, what we do is we put our guarantee on municipal bonds. It makes them uh, double A in their own right. It's a little like uh, you co-signing a student loan uh, for your children. Uh, you hope they get a job and you hope they pay, but um, if they don't, we're there standing by to make timely payment of principal and interest when due. So why do people use us? Uh, issuers uh, use us because we are um, uh, going to lower their uh, cost of funding. And that, that's pure and simple. So we're double A. Uh, we put our guarantee on that. It creates greater liquidity in the paper. We provide on our website for free credit profiles, which is a summary of every transaction that we underwrite. We update that every year. Uh, and that creates uh, value protection for the investor. It also creates uh, you know, sort of unparalleled transparency. And sort of unique to BAM um, uh, in the industry is that we are a mutual insurance company, which means that our stakeholders are the state and local governments that take our insurance. And that's important because what they want, what we want, is to be bigger and stronger and provide that guarantee to the market in order to create greater liquidity, greater security um, on investment portfolios that uh, retail and institutional investors own. All right, Sean, we're also doing an informal poll on um, your favorite college bar in the Washington, D.C. area. You're a Georgetown grad. Where did you go? Well, you know, when when I was at, at Georgetown, um, the, uh, the third edition was a very popular place, um, uh, and, uh, I, and I went there. I actually bartended at a place called The Foundry, um, so um, I'm not cool. objective. I thought The Foundry was pretty terrific as well. Very cool. All right. Hey, Sean, great having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Sean McCarthy, co-founder and the CEO of Build America Mutual. Speaking just for myself, I tend to get a lot of value out of attending conferences. And my career spent mostly at investor conferences. I found it a good way to, you know, meet with clients, talk to other folks, get some new ideas, uh, see new companies, that kind of thing. I even enjoyed the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, which is a couple hundred thousand tech geeks kind of getting together every January. But of course, the pandemic has put the kibosh on the whole conference biz, and we're doing everything virtually. So let's see how this might develop going forward. Ben Choder, president of Notified, joins us. Uh, Notified uh, provides software for virtual events. Uh, so Ben, talk to us about what your business has experienced during this pandemic. I got to think there's a lot of demand for what you guys oh. do at Notified. Oh, my God. So first, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm a big fan, um, but it is totally changed. So we're the world's largest virtual event and streaming organization. COVID has actually moved, right? So now it went from something that was a great way to reach a global audience or an extended audience to something that you had to do in 20. 
So, you know, everyone used to say that virtual events would eventually cannibalize physical events. It's not virtual. It's not virtual events that cannibalize physical events. The world cannibalized physical events. So everyone in 20 had a hop on board and everyone in 21 continued. And now the trend is heading towards, you know, hybrid, right? It's time to do both, have faces in yes. two places. And that's, that seems pretty clear, Ben. What do you do at Notified to help the industry? So we as an organization provide the platform. We're the event tech platform. Whether you're doing a physical event and you wanted to manage the event, whether you're doing a virtual event and wanted to have you know tens of thousands of people attend sessions and breakouts and exhibits, or even if you're doing a hybrid, right? We were doing hybrid pre-COVID. It allows you to actually have that physical audience and the virtual. And you brought up CES. I, CES last year went 100% virtual and had 80,000 people attend. This year, they've decided, or going into 22, they decided to do it as a hybrid. And if you read the news, you know, they've had 15,000 people register in the last two weeks. People are dying to attend, but they also know that there will be such a demand for the virtual element as well. So they're actually doing a true hybrid for the first time. All right, so CES hybrid, uh, we know that as of this moment, Davos is going to be live in Switzerland. That's another big one for global business yep. folks. How about some of the other conferences, whether it's just, you know, a company wants to get their sales force together, you know, in some warm locale in Florida or the desert, or, you know, an investment bank wants to have its a conference with its investors. What are you hearing on that front for 2022? We're hearing that it's going to be a hybrid, right? They're going to do both. They want to have the interaction of being at the event but they also understand that organizations aren't going to be, feel very comfortable, and not all organizations are going to feel comfortable in the beginning of 22, sending everyone to a location. Plus, individuals aren't going to feel comfortable, so they want to give them a choice. So you've got to allow the audience to participate in multiple ways. I mean, there's great advantages of it, too, right? It's, it's cost-effective. It's better for the environment. It's great ESG. What, they, what we all learned in 20 and 21 is it also allows you to expand your audience. So more and more organizations are planning their SKOs. If you can't attend in person, attend in person. If you need to re attend remotely, attend remotely. So I think it just opens up the, the world for you to attend a conference, whether you're physical or virtual. So, and frankly, the main thing that Paul loves about going to the office is it's basically a conference every day. Our... I don't know if you've been to our headquarters at 731 Lexington yeah. Avenue, but it's an incredible space. And, of course, being there with your coworkers is really beneficial. The same is true at big yep. banks. We've heard all the CEOs tell us. Is it possible to have a hybrid experience like that that works as well? It's possible to have a hybrid experience to get people engaged and deliver them the content. But nothing's going to take the place of when I'm in your office or at a Bloomberg conference and being able to walk up to someone and have a conversation. It's a different kind of engagement. They're both very valuable, but it's a different engagement. And I don't think there's any technologies, you know, the metaverse is not going to replace you and I having a cup of coffee or a conversation together. So how would you characterize 2022 in terms of physical conferences? Would it be 2019 levels, or are we still well below kind of where we were pre-pandemic, would you guess? Uh, I think the, 
the quantity of events will be back to pre-COVID. I think the attendance level will be about 25 to 30% less. But by making it virtual, you have a potential even growing your audience. And if you do a really good virtual event, it's going to make people want to attend. I also think the biggest trend going into 22 is the 24-7, 365, always-on environment. The three days of a conference is where you're going to be there meeting with everyone. But what about the 50 weeks the rest of the year, you know, the, the other days, the 360 other days of the year? Yep. How are you going to interact and keep that content going and engage? Yep, and it sounds uh... – the word hybrid seems to be working for not just work environment, but also potentially for other parts of the economy as well, including uh, live events. Ben Choder, president of Notified, he's into that virtual side of the business, giving us some good color here, talking to us about the whole conference biz, uh, likely to be uh, more of a hybrid offering, and that long term could be a good thing. And again, Consumer Electronics Show in January, a couple hundred thousand people in Vegas, Davos in Switzerland, they're back on. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.